Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger Operations Against Troops, Part 2 Mechanics of Liaison The mechanics of liaison depend in each case on the Psychological Warfare Unit. Some had extensive networks of liaison officers, others had virtually none. In China, during 1943-44, the most minor tactical request for a leaflet had to be channeled all the way back to Theater Forward Echelon Headquarters because the political situation was so touchy, the Chinese language so difficult, printing facilities so scarce, and qualified personnel so rare that there was no point in having channels cut across lower down. In France and Belgium, during 1944-45, psychological warfare units were established on a considerable scale at the army level, and liaison officers were widely scattered. It was possible for regimental or battalion commanders to make direct requests of liaison officers. Radio support. On rare occasions, it became possible for radio support to be given a specific unit. The American Standard Wave Broadcasting Station was set up in the vicinity of Lorient, while that French port, still held by the Nazis, was under American siege. The history of this 2D mobile broadcasting company describes the operation as being the first attempt to coordinate artillery, leaflet, and radio propaganda. The station had learned the location of the billets of various Nazi units in the town, together with the names of their key personnel. With this information, a game was arranged with the artillery. One day, at a certain time, these units were addressed by name and their members were told to go outside their buildings and five minutes later they would receive a message. Precisely five minutes later, leaflet shells released the messages advising surrender. The ability of the Americans to do things like that impressed the German soldiers with their hopeless position more than words. Obviously, such an operation required close contact with the enemy, plus known possession of standard wave radio receivers by enemy personnel. Air support. Normal communications channels, such as might be used for air-ground combat liaison, form one of the most valuable aids to a small unit. From time to time, it is possible either for the unit to make up the leaflets, if it has a PW team, and to request their dropping by the associated air unit, or else to make a direct request to the appropriate higher psychological warfare headquarters, asking that the headquarters not only make up the leaflet, but arrange for its dropping at a stated time. Leaflet Discharging Weapons The airplane was far and away the most important leaflet distributing device. In the CBI theater, there was developed a leaflet belly tank of local design for use on pursuit planes. The belly tank was converted to a leaflet throwing machine. Adjustment of the controls could regulate the speed at which leaflets were discharged,
so that the pilot could give enemy units or installations bursts of leaflets in precisely the same way that he would strafe them with machine guns. This, however, was exceptional, owing to the tremendous dispersion of the Japanese in the jungle and the need to conserve leaflets. In most instances, the leaflet bomb or leaflet box was the standard Air Force method of distributing leaflets. Among the ground weapons used for discharge of leaflets, there are the following. Chemical warfare shells converted to leaflet use, especially smoke shells. Almost every variety of available artillery shell, howitzers have proved especially useful. Rifle grenades converted for leaflets. Leaflet bundles with a small quantity of explosive attached to a quick fuse, packed so as to be thrown in a manner similar to the manual throwing of a grenade. Mortars were probably the chief leaflet throwing device on both the European and Asiatic fronts. The German went so far as to develop a special propaganda mortar. Smoke shells proved particularly easy to adapt. The firing of leaflet shells is a responsibility of the unit possessing the guns. Psychological warfare teams were not issued their own guns, save for unit protection. The actual distribution of leaflet shells was affected, taking the 5th Army as an example, in the following manner. The Army Combat Propaganda Team planned, cleared, printed, and packed leaflets suitable for the occasion. The team cleared with the artillery officer, 5th Army, an agreement for an order to use the leaflets. The team's own liaison officers transmit the order to the appropriate divisions and lower echelons. The order itself prescribed the times for picking up the leaflets from the ammunition dumps. The team procures the empty shells and packs them with leaflets. The Army order allots 150 leaflet shells per division. The team specifies, in the order, the time limit within which the shells are to be used. Corps in our division selects the specific targets, the general target being all enemy concentrations within range. In smaller units, the propaganda unit will often be placed in direct communication with a specific artillery unit, which will be charged with the responsibility for discharging the leaflet shell at opportune times. When a requesting unit asks for leaflets, and itself possesses the guns which could fire leaflet shells, it is entirely possible for the supplier to send leaflets ready packed in the shells. However, even the most rapid shell packing job takes considerably more time than the readying of aircraft for leaflet distribution. When it is considered that the plane not only discharges the leaflets, but delivers them from the supply point all in one operation, it will be seen that close air-ground coordination will often do a quicker, bigger job of leaflet saturation than could be achieved by the requesting, preparing, transporting, 
and firing of leaflet shells. Contingencies of the Future This text refers to known experience. Short of turning to the field of futuristic fiction, it is impossible to provide discussion of situations which have not been known in the American army. The experiences of the Nazis and the Japanese cannot be taken by ourselves as wholly parallel, since those peoples, under dictatorship and rabid indoctrination, produced a different kind of army from the American. What should a small unit commander do if his men thought they had been contaminated by airborne disease germs distributed by enemy bacteriological warfare planes? How should he act if his men were told by an enemy broadcast that they would be exposed to radiation which would cause anemia, cancer, or death, if they did not surrender immediately? What should he do if he finds himself cut off from all American supplies, operating a lonely unit in contaminated or dangerous areas, and then discovers that his own men are the victims of enemy black propaganda. How should he behave if his men get the idea that they are never going to be replaced, and if they suspect, either spontaneously or because of enemy action, that the unit has been abandoned by the American government and people? What could a commander do if a delegation called on him right out in a zone of operations and demanded a right to be heard. Suppose that he knew their complaints about food, rotation, danger, etc. to be justified, and knew at the same time that the enemy had subverted some of his men into either being dupes or traitors. Suppose his men protested a lack of deep lead mine shelters the day after enemy leaflets instructed the American soldiers to ask for such shelters. Should he treat all such enlisted men as traitors? Suppose he is faced with the specter of political treason, subversion, and revolution. American officers have not faced such problems since the days in which George Washington was commander-in-chief. War after war, we have gone into the fight with a profound confidence in our ability to win. Future war may hold forth no such assurance. If America is injured, her troops decimated, their homes exploded or poisoned by foreign atomic attack, brand new questions of psychological warfare will be posed. No living American has ever had to face such problems. This is no assurance that they will never occur. Upon the manhood, the fairness, the sheer intelligence of small unit commanders, there may fall the unexpected task of holding their units together in the face of disastrous psychological attack. Surrender Leaflets Surrender Leaflets are the infantry of the propaganda war. They go in and finish the job to which the preceding years of radio broadcasts the demoralization of the home front, the campaigns of news and morale materials to troops, and the actual air, ground, and sea attacks have led up. 
Sudden use of surrender leaflets on a victorious or unprepared enemy is not likely to take effect. The Japanese surrender leaflets dropped on the Americans in Southwest Pacific were issued without previous materials readying the Americans. Furthermore, they were dropped when the American situation was plainly improving, and when American soldiers were not likely to be thinking about surrender in order to get individual escape from the war. The preparation of surrender leaflets calls for the tactical use of printing facilities. This is the job of the combat propaganda unit with its high-speed press, its liaison with both ground and air forces, its up-to-the-minute intelligence on enemy movements, situation, and order of battle. The enemy should be given leaflets showing him how clearly he is pinned down, identifying him, generally stripping him of the sense of secrecy and the trust in his commanders that make it possible for him to go on fighting. When surrender can be effected, he should be given the simplest, plainest command the circumstances allow. In the case of the Japanese, there were difficulties on the American side about letting the Japanese come over to surrender. Too many of them were suspected of having tucked hand grenades into their fudoshi. Many a Japanese started out for the Allied lines and failed to make his peaceful intentions plain enough. The result was a strong deterrent to other Japanese, who may have been trying to decide whether they wanted to surrender or not. Figure 63. Action Type. Air Rescue Facilities. These leaflets from China Theater were designed to help the work of the 14th Air Force. Action called for from the civilians included the assistance of hurt flyers, the identification of Americans as allies and not as Japanese when they parachuted to the ground, the avoidance of bridges, and other bomb targets. End of figure 63. It was found that the bright white leaflet with the identifying stripes on it, figure 69, would be shown to our troops, who could be taught to hold their fire when they saw a Japanese carrying that type of leaflet. To the Japanese, the plainness of the surrender formula was a considerable help in coming over. Figure 64. Pre-Action News. Psychological warfare facilities can be extremely helpful in favorable situations. One of the most important ways of developing a favorable situation is to predispose enemy soldiers toward the idea of surrendering. News of surrender. Emphasis on the comforts and relief of prisoners of war. And above all, emphasis on their numerousness can contribute to the actual act of surrender. This newspaper looks like a newspaper, but its chief emphasis is on the extent of surrenders. End of figure 64. Variations on the surrender leaflet include the following devices. Letters with signatures blacked out of prisoners of war who have found conditions decent and who are enjoying rest good care and good food. Photographs 
with the faces blocked out when security procedures or the rules of war so require, showing enemy prisoners actually enjoying the benefits of being out of the war. Political arguments to the effect that the highest duty of the soldier is to his country, or emperor, and that if he dies for the sake of some general in a foolish war, he will be denying his country a fine post-war citizen like himself, needed for reconstruction and progress. A list of foods available to surrenderees. See figure 13 from World War I. A statement of the conditions of military imprisonment, reaffirming the rules of the Geneva Convention. The promise that the potential prisoner will be allowed mail communication with home. Anger motif, showing scum and profiteers at home, and attempting to induce surrender by telling the soldier that he is being made a sucker. Obscene pictures, showing naked women, designed to make the involuntary celibate so desirous of women that he surrenders out of bad nerves. Japanese idea, and did not work. The troops naturally kept the pornography, but merely despised the Japanese as queer little people for having sent it. This type cannot be illustrated. The Library of Congress has copies in a locked file. Figure 65. Direct commands to enemy forces. As the situation develops against the enemy, it becomes possible to use leaflets to force the surrender of enemy troops by direct command. This kind of appeal is lost when enemy morale remains irrationally high because of a beloved commander or some other unpredictable factor. But in normal situations, it either forces the enemy commander's hand or leaves him with a deteriorating force. Figure 66. Basic Types. Contingency Commands. Leaflets can be made up in advance to govern typical situations which may arise. This, command to the scattered German troops, orders all isolated German remnants to surrender to the nearest Allied force. Figure 67. Tactical Surrender Leaflets. Enemy troops often fail to understand why they should surrender. Under such circumstances, it is useful to send them a map, showing them plainly what their situation is. If misrepresentation is done at this point, it will be at the cost of loss of credence later on. These leaflets were prepared to prevent Japanese units and the Philippines from staging last-ditch fights after the surrender of Japan. Similar maps had been used for tactical purposes earlier. End of figures 65 to 67. The effective surrender leaflet frequently turns language difficulties into an asset. Whole series of leaflets will teach the enemy soldier how to say, I surrender in the language of the propagandist. The words, I surrender, were made familiar to every German soldier. It is simply the phonetic spelling of English for Germans to pronounce. Surrender is not merely a case of transferring loyalties. It is a highly dangerous operation for most infantrymen.
It takes nerve if done deliberately. The voluntary surrendery risks being shot by some exasperated officer or comrade on his own side. He risks court-martial for treason if his surrender is willful and his side wins the war. He may run into a trigger-happy enemy who will shoot him. He may fail to make himself understood to the enemy. Therefore, surrender leaflets try to catch some simple procedure to indoctrinate the enemy soldier with routine things which he can do when the opportunity arises. Of all leaflets, those most effective, most closely tied in with unconscious preparation for eventual conscious choice, are the ones dealing specifically with concrete treatment of prisoners of war. The surrender leaflet itself can be used as an authorization to surrender. The enemy soldier who carries a leaflet around with him, just in case he may need it, is already partially subverted from enemy service. Figure 68. Basic Types. Surrender Leaflet. The surrender leaflet shown was not welcomed by the Japanese because it indicated that the Japanese soldier using it wished to surrender. This was very vulgar and depressing indeed, and few Japanese soldiers would accept such a humiliation. Except for its wording, the leaflet is good. As large as a big magazine cover, it is white with red and blue trim and can be identified readily. End of Figure 68 Other Action Leaflets In World War II, there were ample opportunities to surrender on most fronts. In subsequent conflicts, however, it is quite possible that surrendering will be physically unfeasible, because the surrenderee will have no one at hand to whom to surrender. See below, pages 248 to 250. Recourse may then be had to a type of leaflet only occasionally used in World War II. The leaflet, which calls on enemy troops to perform some action other than surrender. The commonest of these is desertion, when it is known that enemy forces are being held in a dangerous spot by their own command, and when there is a fair probability that heavy artillery or air attack can be concentrated on the area which has been strewn with leaflets. A bluff normally fails, and moreover discredits later operations of the same kind, whereas a successful and fulfilled threat builds up cumulative credibility among the enemy audience. When long-range weapons are used, it may be possible to address troops by leaflet before they attack, suggesting that they remove themselves, as individuals, the places of safety. Such an operation would assist enemy disorganization. The author knows of no case where the Germans did this with their V-1 or V-2 bombs, but Figure 3 applied to both civilians and troops in the cities marked for destruction by incendiary B-29 raids. Black action appeals may teach the enemy troops how to malinger, may present political or ethnic arguments to troops known to be members of minorities or satellite nationalities, for example, Poles in Nazi service, with the intent 
that these mutiny, or may, at the very end of a war, call upon enemy troops as units to cease resistance and to await a later opportunity for organized surrender. Loudspeaker Units The use of the amplified human voice developed slowly in World War II. Improvised units were set up in North Africa, in the Italian landings, at Anzio, and in the Normandy operations. At times, these talked over valuable groups of enemy prisoners, but their range did not go beyond 200 yards, which sharply limited their utility. The Navy was simultaneously experimenting with polyplanes in the Pacific, which flew at considerable altitudes over islands and talked to the Japanese troops on the ground. Figure 69. Improved Surrender Leaflet. The new leaflet, which did bring the Japanese in, was better phrased. It did not mention the nasty word, surrender, but said, I cease resistance. It also showed the Japanese how to carry the leaflet, so as to persuade the triggery Americans that he was not holding a hand grenade behind it. The back of the leaflet, instead of being left blank, showed happy Japanese prisoners enjoying American captivity, their faces left identifiable as Japanese, but blanked out enough to head off individual identification. Compare this with figure 4, the Passierschein we used on the Germans. End of figure 69. Ultimate success came with the development of loudspeakers on tank mounts. These developed a range of two miles, with the result that they had real value in combat operations. In April 1945, a loudspeaker tank with the 19 Corps made an average of 20 broadcasts a day during action. Short talks were given to the enemy troops just before attack. Attacks were then withheld long enough to permit prisoners to come in. The attacks were then launched, lifted after a pause to permit more prisoners to come in, and finally pushed through. This tactic worked particularly well at roadblocks, where enemy troops were flanked. In the Tudelbergerwald, a whole platoon was persuaded to surrender. At Hildesheim, 250 prisoners came over together. Elsewhere in the drive into Germany, the Germans came over in even greater numbers, but the situation was then so obviously at its best for us that they probably would have responded similarly to command banners, black words on white background, such as the ancient Chinese imperial forces used to carry around for tactical communication with bandits and rebels. On Okinawa, tank-mounted loudspeakers were ingeniously hooked up. The American tank officers and crews obviously could not speak good colloquial Japanese. The Japanese troops were dug in like rodents, and in a condition of desperation that made them fight cruelly and suicidally. Even if the Americans shelled the openings of their large cave mouths or ran armored bulldozers over the holes, burying the Japanese alive, there was the chance 
but the Japanese would run through long underground passages and pop up later, possibly at night, to cause more damage before they were killed. With Americans and Japanese unable to talk to one another, this condition might have led to a severe loss of American life and mopping up hundreds upon hundreds of such minute Japanese strongholds. The American tanks had loudspeakers mounted on many of them. They had radio telephone communication that could be used between the different tanks on a tank team. Or, it was an alternative and could not be used simultaneously, could be employed for the commanding tank to communicate back to headquarters. At headquarters, American-Japanese, whose American accents had been trained out of their voices in special public speaking classes, sat ready and waiting. The tank team would come into the valley, and the American commander would look the situation over. He would cut his radio telephone into communication with headquarters, and would then say, Hillside ahead of me. No characterizing features. Five or six holes, but I can't tell which ones have Japanese in them. I can get up the hill. There are two trees at the crest of the hill, and a bunch of these native graves over on the left. The American Japanese at headquarters would say, Regular announcement, sir? Do you want them to assemble by the graves or at the trees? Tell them to stand in front of the graves. That way they'll be coming downhill. Want to cut in? Yes, sir, says the headquarters man. The tank commander would then cut his radio phone into a relay, and the tanks, which had loudspeakers, would automatically connect the loudspeaker units direct with the radio telephone. A voice, loud as the voice of a god, would fill the entire valley, coming from everywhere at once and speaking good, clear Japanese. Attention, Japanese troops, attention. This is the American tank commander calling. I am going to destroy all resistance in this valley. Attention, I have flamethrowers. These will be used on all dugouts and caves. Attention, flamethrowers will be employed. Gunfire will close the cave mouth. No Japanese personnel can expect to escape. Japanese personnel commanded to cease resistance. Japanese personnel commanded to cease resistance. Japanese personnel must assemble in front of native burial place to American left flank, Japanese right flank. The tank commander would watch while the loudspeakers blared. First, one Japanese. Then more would come in, small knots to the assembly place as directed. The commander would then cut the American Japanese back in and say, I think they're holding out on the hill crest. Try that. Just a minute or two. If they don't start coming, I'll go after them and cut you in just when I reach the top. Yes, sir. Which part of the hill crest, sir? I can't tell. Anywhere. The speakers will be cut back in. Attention. Japanese forces remaining on hill crest. Japanese forces just behind us under command of Colonel Musashi. Surrendered last night and are now well taken care of. You are being given the same chance. Attention, I will soon come up the hill. A few more Japanese figures, small as ants on a sand dune, would come into sight on the hill 
and begin clambering down to the point of surrender. Figure 70. End of War This leaflet helped the war to end, just as did the Great Leaflet which submitted the Japanese surrender terms back to the Japanese people. On one side, the leaflet carries news from the Wehrmacht last defeats. On the other, it takes up the future of Germany as determined by the Crimea Conference. End of section 23